It's been a great year, 2013, and now into 2014. Not such a great year, at least weather-wise. I tell you, I think Satan is in charge of the weather. Every weekend in 2014, we've just been snow and sleet and terrible weather. And here we are, another one uh, today. And I uh, thank you for coming. I'll try to preach in a way that makes you glad that you've forged through the snow and the whatever you had to go through to uh, to get here. I do want to say, yesterday was really one of the prouder days that uh, I've had as a pastor. Uh, here I was up at the Gary facility and so many, I look out, I see so many of you that were up there and ex- exciting to let everybody see it in the first place. And we heard from so many people like, wow, you know, and that was great. But then just to see the work ethic and how people, uh, I mean, so much work was done. And it reminded me of, there's that passage in Nehemiah where he talks about the building of the wall. And, and he says that in however many days they built the wall up to halfway high because the people had a mind to work. And uh, I saw that on display yesterday and it was really, really great. We have a very nice article in the paper today. If you didn't see it, you can go online and, and check out uh, the Times announcing uh, that we're coming to Gary and talking about the, the workday and all that, and it was very favorably written, which doesn't always happen in uh, the press, but this one definitely was. So really a fun, uh, a fun weekend and uh, one that I will remember fondly. Well, as we said earlier, we have, uh, we have our annual meeting after this service for members of the church. So to accommodate that, we have a little shorter service and a little shorter sermon. And the shorter sermon is, uh, we'll just have to call it the providence of God, because it is actually the longest commandment that we're looking at, and yet the shortest sermon on that. So we'll see how that goes, right? But uh, we are in Exodus chapter 20, and we're in this series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, We looked at the first commandment last week, and we saw that command, thou shalt have no other gods before me, what... God was saying there was that you shall not love anything, you shall not have affection for anything, you shall not treasure anything or anyone in your heart, in your value set, in your priority set, more than me. So the negative is, don't do that. The positive is, of course, God is essentially saying, enjoy me and the pleasures and the gladness and the meaning and the significance that comes by having your creator at the center of your life and for all of the things in your life to orbit around him. This is the way that we were made to live. And God knows what brings us the greatest happiness and and gladness and joy and meaning in this life. And it's not me at the center, it's God at the center and all the things about me revolving and orbiting around Him. So it is the command to love Him, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever. Now listen as we read the second command that God gave to Israel. This is Exodus 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children uh, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, we can summarize the first commandment as a command to worship the right God. We can summarize the second command to be to worship the right God rightly or to worship the right God in the right way. 
Now, how do you worship the right God in the wrong way? And this is what God is speaking to here. And uh, he talks about here now idols or icons, these religious uh, man-made representations of God. He, uh, he calls them here, the ESV calls it uh, carved image. You might be familiar with the old King James language, you shall not make unto thyself any graven image. And just graven sounds gravenly, doesn't it? It sounds bad, just the word. So what is he talking about here when he says a chiseled image or, or I'm sorry, a carved image or a, a graven image? And the Hebrew word there, it, it literally means to be chiseled or to be, to be hacked. And the idea is not uh, that, uh, that God is the one that is doing the chiseling. This is, this, is, this is man that is doing the chiseling. This is a man-made thing, a man-made representation of my understanding of who God is. Don't do that. So clearly, to, to worship a false god, that is a violation of the first commandment. But this commandment goes further. It's saying that you shall not chisel, you shall not paint, you shall not sculpt, you shall not construct anything that you are in your mind thinking is God or somehow captures the essence of who God is. And notice the all-inclusive language here. He says, don't make him to look like anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now, what is not included in those three things? That's pretty much everything. Do not make anything. Do not make God to look like anything that is created. And we see the context here in verse 5. And the primary concern is with worship. You shall not bow down to them. Okay? So the concern then is that we would somehow think that we can take the infinite God and make him finite, and then after making him finite, to worship him, to bow down to him, to somehow think that this is the God that has saved me, or this is a portal to God, a means to God in some way. Now this has been man's struggle ever since Adam and Eve uh, sinned because we are all the time wanting somehow to make God tangible, to make him physical, to make him controllable. If I can make God, then who really is God? If I'm the creator of God, then I am actually, I'm over God. I can manipulate God. I can control him. And Romans 1 talks about this, and Paul in Romans is just one big exegesis of what the gospel is, and he begins in chapter 1 by describing man's fundamental condition and man's fundamental problem. And he says in Romans 1, uh, this description, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, what, what were they actually doing there? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And we see there, essentially, Paul describing the second commandment, where man exchanges in their heart and in their mind and in their religion, exchanges God, the one true God, as their God, and replaces him with something that is made, worshiping a created thing rather than uh, the creator. And so we are all the time involved in this substitute worship, right? 
There is a God that we are to live for. There is a God that we are to worship. But we're all the time wanting to replace him in our hearts, which is the first commandment, or to bow down to something uh, that is physical and to diminish his glory, which is the second commandment. All right, so do not, do not make anything that you think is God or that accesses you to God as a means to God. And this can be something that God has made, okay? So don't worship the moon, don't worship the sun, don't worship the sea, don't worship the mountain, don't worship uh, the cow, don't worship anything that is made by God. But it also includes anything that we would make. And this is, of course, in the religions of the world and down through history, what man has always seemed to have done is to have chiseled, hammered, carved, sculpted, painted, made something that in their mind they are viewing as God or as treating that thing like God. That is the graven image. That is the carved image of the second commandment. Now, lest you say, oh, come on, who actually does this, right? This is a silly command. What's the point? Realize, even in the redemptive story here, here we are in Exodus 20, and, and, and God speaks from the mountain. Well, if you continue to read, Moses, God calls Moses up on the mountain. And Moses goes up there for like 40 days. And while he's up there, the people of God are down at the, at the bottom of the mountain. And there they are. They're waiting for Moses to come down. Where is the guy? This is taking a long time. I'm not so sure that that voice that thundered from the mountain was actually God. And they began to murmur and grumble. And they went to Aaron and they said, make for us a God that we can worship. And so Aaron says, all right, y'all throw your gold in. And they threw their gold in and they crafted the famous golden calf, which the Egyptians, part of their religion was worshiping the bull and the calf. And so this is what they had seen their neighbors, the Egyptians. They'd grown up around bull and calf worship. And Aaron makes the famous golden calf. And the text tells us that the people gathered together. There was an altar that was built in front of the calf. They worshiped the calf. They had a feast and they involved themselves in revelry, essentially a mass orgy. Here we have the people of God a month after this moment on the mountain, creating an idol, worshiping it and violating really all the commands in one way or the other uh, and and what they involved themselves in. Now, we could look at that and say, these crazy people. I can't believe that they would ever bow down to anything but the one true God. And we would fail to realize, of course, that their heart is the same as ours. Our heart is the same as theirs. And that, that draw to something that I can view as God or that I can somehow think I'm close to God because this thing draws me close to God, the venerating and the deifying of man-made things is so prevalent all over the world. Now, what's wrong with it, actually? You say, oh, come on. If you got something in your house or there's something that you have in your car that you, know, you sort of you touch it and think by touching it or praying to it, I'll have a safe journey to church through a snowy road on a Sunday. I'm sure none of, nobody here did that. Those kind of people don't come to church uh, on a snowy day. Um, <laughs> I'm digressing big time. Uh, what's wrong? What is wrong with these kinds of religious artifacts and, and things that somehow make us feel close to God? Fundamentally, this is what's wrong with it. 
The whole world cannot contain the greatness of God. It reflects the glory of God. It reflects his majesty, but it cannot contain the glory of God. And it is the height of human arrogance to think that I can make something that is actually God. When the whole world and the universe is not big enough to contain his true greatness and grandeur. And so the real issue under the second commandment is the issue of blasphemy and irreverence. To think that I can make God is human pride. And verse 5 and 6 explains why this is so important to God. You can say, come on, if you're God, why do you care, right? Why do you care if these crazy people are making these things and bowing down to them? Notice what he says. For I, the, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Now, jealousy has a bad connotation. Some commentators say, better to translate this, zealous God. He is jealous and he is zealous. Okay, well, what is he jealous and what is he zealous for? He is jealous for his glory and for his majesty. And so when image bearers made to worship him make things and bow down to them, thinking that those things are him, It is minimizing their glory. It is diminishing the grandeur of who God is. And since God is jealous for his glory, he will not stand for it. In fact, please note, there is a promised punishment for those who bow down to anything that is lesser than God. Notice what he says here. He says to visit punishment on that person up to the third and fourth generation. In other words, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids, and their great-great-grandkids in some way are going to suffer from the idolatry of the great-great-grandfather. Now, this is a controversial verse and a controversial thing. And right now, some of you are saying to yourself, that's not fair. That is not fair. And it's controversial in a sense because the Bible says the opposite also. In Deuteronomy, God says that he won't punish children for the sins of the father. And so we look at this passage here, and we look at that passage there, and we say, what's going on? They seem to be saying the opposite thing. And in reality, they are not saying the opposite thing if we understand what he is actually saying here. What God is saying here is that the life that is lived for something less than God, and remember, worship is not simply what I am physically bowing down to, Worship is what I am deriving my meaning and my significance, what I am truly loving and living my life for. For those that live and love something that is less than God, he says here that there is a punishment that comes upon their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Now, clearly, we are all accountable for the decisions that we make. And if great-granddad was an alcoholic and uh, was uh, seen at the local shrine bowing down to whatever. In God's eyes, he is responsible for what he did, and I am responsible for what I do. Okay, And that's the Deuteronomy passage. But what do we clearly know about the influence that a life lived away from God, apart from God, or for something less than God, what does that life do? It influences profoundly, and no more greatly than with parents and their children. 
And God has so built into the moral and ethical structure of society and family that a life that is lived away from God, hating him, is actually what the text says there, that they will drag down their family and their children with them. Now, God's grace can intervene and clearly does. How many of us here in this room probably had parents that didn't live for God and live for some other thing? But if you were to look around and if you were to actually look at how one parent loves this, the parent loves this, lives for this, oftentimes the children do as well. And then they are accountable for the decisions that they made while being influenced greatly by their parents. Idolatry is a generational punishment. Which is one reason, he says, you need to realize I am God and to worship me, worship me only. Now you say, well, I read the Bible. Pastor Steve, I read the Bible. And I read the Bible and I see that God actually says that he has eyes and he has arms. uh, And... Uh, that, that, that he describes himself in physical terms. I mean, if God describes himself in physical terms, then why is it wrong if we portray him in some physical way? And we have to realize that when God does this, it's not because he actually has arms and eyes. God is spirit. He is invisible. That is one reason to make something uh, physical and say that it's God. It is actually a false God because the real God isn't that way. He has eyes. Theologians call this anthropomorphisms, where God condescends to our understanding and explains himself in categories that we can understand. So how do I know that God sees and and knows my life and cares about the details of my life? God says, I have eyes. Now, he doesn't actually have eyes, but all that eyes can convey, he has. He knows and he sees. And when he wants to comfort us and to say that he is there for us in times of trouble, he says, I have arms and I wrap you up in my arms. He doesn't actually have arms, but he does have love and his presence can envelope us in times of trouble. And, and he says, you know what? I have a heart. My heart is for you. I love you from my heart. He doesn't actually have a heart, but he does have love and he is love. And so he describes himself in physical terms so that we can understand what he's like, not because he actually is physical. He is not physical. He is spiritual, and he is infinite, and he is far greater than any of us begin to even, in our wildest theological imagination, begin to understand. He is far greater than we expect. Now, as an example of this, the Wizard of Oz is the opposite, right? And all of you probably know the story of Dorothy and her friends, and she was off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz, because, 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 because of all of the wonderful things he does, right? So off they go, skipping to go to the wizard of Oz. You know the story. There's some uh, troubles, trials, and tribulations along the way, but they eventually get to the wizard of Oz, and lo and behold, the great wizard of Oz, what is he? He's way less than they expected. They thought he was here, but he's way down here, right? He's a little man, and he's got levers, and he's got things that make sounds, but he's way less than expected. Our experience with God is going to be the opposite. If you were to take every deep, wonderful, fantastic 
theological contemplation that this room has ever had about God. And you put them all together in one big, massive view of how great God is. Someday, when we actually see him and realize the grandeur of God, he is going to be far greater than anything we can begin to understand. That is the greatness of God. And one of the glories of being a Christian is that when I die, I have this hope, this confident hope in the beatific vision that I'm going to see God and that in that moment I am going to stand before my creator and stand before infinite. In infinity is really what God is. And in that moment we will realize, you know what? To think that you can take that and make it. To think that you can take that and somehow capture it a man-made thing, or even the sun or the moon or all the universe, if I bow down to the universe, I am bowing down to something that is infinitely less than God. That's how much greater he is. Or to think about it this way, the, 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 what we're doing when we, when we uh, worship something less than God and what it says about our understanding of who God is. If, uh, if, if today in our, in our children's ministry, you know, in our children's ministry, they often do crafts, right? So they got a piece of paper and crayons. And, and oftentimes the four-year-olds are in there and they're, you know, they're drawing things, right? Scribbly things. And so let's say the teacher goes up and says, oh, honey, that's such a beautiful picture. What, who is it? And she, that's daddy. Oh, you mean it looks like daddy? no. It's actually my daddy. The teacher would say, honey, your daddy is so much greater than that picture. Don't think that that picture is your daddy, right? And that's a silly illustration, but this is the, the challenge of understanding how silly idols are when understood properly the grandeur and the greatness of the personhood of God. So if we could draw a comparison then between what God is actually like and what an icon or an idol is trying to say that God is like, we see that in the characters of God. God is spirit. He is, he is invisible. But an idol is physical and visible. God is eternal. An idol, it's a created thing, right? God is present everywhere, omnipresent. But an idol locates God to one singular location. That's not true about God. And God is alive. He is the most alive being in all of the world. And yet an idol is just a piece of wood. It's a, it's a piece of metal. It's a whatever. It's non-living matter. God is personal and knowable. And he communicates. And you can love. And he loves back. But an idol is totally impersonal. There is absolutely no relationship to be had with it. God is relational, but an idol, no communication, no love, no relationship. It is a thing. It is a created thing. And so there could not be any greater disparity in actuality between a created thing by a created thing, us, than the almighty, infinite personhood of God. And those two things are in absolute... Uh, disjunction they're total polarities right and that's why god says don't do it you are you are worshiping maybe even the right god in your mind but you are worshiping the right god wrongly and i want my people to worship the right god rightly and in the right way so that is one massive reason that we ought not do that here's a second and this is just as important, is to realize 
that icons and our desire to worship something that we can see and touch and feel, these things actually are a distraction from the one physical representation of who God is that God wants us to worship. And his name is Jesus. In your heart, you can say, I can't relate to an invisible God. I can't relate to a spiritual God. I can't see God. I can't know him. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I can't relate to him. And God understanding that incarnated in physical flesh and form, one accurate representation of who he is and calls all of us to worship him. And Jesus is that perfect, complete incarnation of the personhood of God. This is how the Bible describes Jesus. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so, again, we we live in a physical world. Everybody we know is physical. Everything that we relate to is physical. And we struggle to relate to the eternal, the spiritual, the non-physical, the infinite. And God has given us one beautiful, fantastic, blessed, incarnate, physical form and expression of who God is. And we have have the, the privilege of knowing him by the Holy Spirit of, of worshiping him by the spirit and of actually in our hearts knowing that he is physical. He meets that desire that we have for physical, knowable, touchable God. We look in the story of the gospels, for example, and there you have the apostle John placing his head upon Jesus shoulder, or you have Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. She clung to Jesus, right? She wanted, she did what all of us want to do and can't wait to do. And that is she touched the resurrected Lord. And yet here we are now, we're separated by, from those events by hundreds of years. The Bible says that God, Jesus is at the right hand of God, that he's coming again. And yet we can't do what Mary Magdalene did and we can't do what John did. We are in what Peter describes a situation like this. Verse 8 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I wouldn't mind that as the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the front of the church describing Bethel Church. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. So we look at the incarnate Jesus, and as much as we wish we could be Mary Magdalene clinging to him and have the memory of touching him and knowing him through that tactile experience, We don't see him, we don't touch him, but we love him. And this is the work of the Spirit in our hearts to change our hearts so that we can know God and know him through Jesus and to know that he is physical. He will always be physical. He has a glorified body and someday I will see him and I believe that we will also touch him or be touched by him as he ministers to us in our eternal dwellings. But only Jesus 
is to be worshipped. So do not let any physical thing, whether it is a beautiful thing, a a religiously man-made thing, something that God has made that you like in this world, do not let any other physical thing be the object of your worship other than the incarnate Lord Jesus. Now I want to talk an application point here because this is so prevalent in the world. Because you might be going, I'm not exactly sure because I don't have any of these in my house and I don't have any in my car and I don't see any uh, application to this. Uh, It is simply because maybe you haven't got out and, and seen the world. Okay, So let's talk about what is the difference then between art that is inspirational, that represents in some ways, and art that becomes icon. And by icon, I mean uh, something that is venerated, something that is nearly deified, or something that I view as a means in some way to God. What is the difference between art and icon? Well, over the years, just to tell you a little bit, over the years, uh, mostly through our, our missions program, I've had the privilege to travel to see missionaries in various parts of the world. Everywhere that I have gone in this world, there is on a massive level a violation of the second commandment. Now, an easy example of this is if you were to go see our missionary Abraham Thomas in the country of India where uh, Hinduism has 300 million gods and they actually make them, many of them at least. And so you go into a hotel, you go into a restaurant or really anywhere and you're going to see actually carved images that are the god of that store or restaurant or whatever and many of them are very grotesque and to my eye ugly but they are they are to that to whoever is doing that they are a, a god to them and they feel drawn to the divine because they have this icon that is in that is in their store uh that's an that's an easy one but that's an example of worshiping a false god wrongly okay and remember god wants us to worship the right god rightly what, do, what about all of these places that have not Hinduism on the name, but actually have Christianity on the name? Huge cathedrals and these ancient expressions of worship that uh, for centuries have been expressed in this particular way. What do we say about these ancient churches? And if you, don't, if you, if you know something about church history, and if you don't, you can read about this online— The use of icons in worship has been one of the biggest battles that has ravaged uh, the church. And you have, in history, you can look at this, battles in the Western church, Roman Catholic church, versus the, the, the Eastern church, now we call it the Orthodox church, about the use of images of Jesus and pictures and sculptures and all the rest. Is that appropriate in a house of worship? At the very least, maybe you've been to a wedding or some other place where you walk into that house of worship and it looks a lot different than it does here, right? Because there is so much artwork and so much sculptures and so many things all around, all part of the house of worship. And this is true all over the world. And so, for example, in church history, the Reformation comes along and the Reformers are like, hey, no icons in worship. And so in Europe, you can, really, you can tell the difference between a church that... Uh, is currently still practicing some form of an ancient Christianity and churches that during the Reformation were basically whitewashed of 
any of that artwork. And so during the Reformation, they went into these cathedrals that formerly had had all these sculptures and all these things, and they tore them down, and they took all of the little mosaics down. And so the Reformation churches are very plain. They're huge, but plain. And uh, that's part of the story of the church, is this battle over the use of icons in worship. Or how about if I ask this question? If we are not to make an image of God in any way, is it wrong for you to have a picture of Jesus up in your house? Or a painting of the 12 disciples uh, at the Last Supper up in your house or in our church to have some big picture of Jesus? Is Is that right or wrong? I mean, if we're not to make... Any representation of God, heaven, earth, under the earth, then is that appropriate on a personal level or on a corporate level? And now you see how some of this actually comes to bear on our, how we approach God and our vision of what God is like. So what is the difference then between our art and icon? In some ways, it's much like Moses and the brass serpent. If you remember, God provided healing and, and Jesus made the, the bronze serpent and, or not Jesus, but Moses and raised it up and the people that looked to it, they were saved. Well, if you read through the story of Israel, you know that that serpent, that sculpture became a stumbling block for Israel because they actually started worshiping it, right? The art and the gift from God became an icon and a stumbling block. And often that's what happens. I mean, we have all of this religious art. And much of it, the, the, the artist, when he was drawing the picture of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, or whatever it was, or Jesus even on the cross, was not making this to be an object of worship. The purpose was not for it to be that. Rather, he was simply wanting out of his faith or his heart to express something that was to him meaningful and was not intending to worship it for, or for anybody else to worship it. But what happens is that people get religiously superstitious. And that artistic expression of Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is actually looking at me. And I can talk to him. And maybe I can pray to him. I can venerate him. This is the word that's oftentimes used. The veneration of art, it becomes icon. It becomes like God or a means to God for me. And yet, what do we know from Scripture? There is only one way to God. And it is not through an artistic expression. It is through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that include, that's him. Not pictures of him, not pictures of his friends, not pictures of his mom. It is through Jesus that we have access to the Father. And this is what is so prevalent all over the world and in homes and around the world, churches with art that has become icon. And people lighting candles in front of some artistic thing and praying to that artistic thing. In their homes, having little images that are, there. you know, it's just nice to have. But you know what? When I'm in a time of trouble, man, I'll hold on to that little sculpture. Or I'll pray in front of that picture. Or I'll light a candle in some way to somebody. Thinking that somehow this thing in my worship is going to help me. And friends, we have to realize that art is not the way to God. Pictures of Jesus are not the way to God. 
The disciples' remains or graves or anything else are not the way to God. Mary is not the way to God. Pictures of Mary or sculptures of Mary are not the way to God. Pictures and paintings and sculptures and crucifixes and crosses and all of this religious art is not the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. And all these other things are distraction in the least and idolatry in the worst. I remember some years ago, we, had a, we offered a church tour here for those that would like to go. And uh, it was a Steps of Paul uh, journey. And so we're over in Greece and we went to Italy and we kind of toured around in places like that. And uh, we were in one very famous church, uh, an ancient church. And uh, we're standing in the, and it's just massive. Uh, and there are, you look around and, and, and there's sculptures and there is art. It's just covering all the walls and everywhere you look, there's all of this artistic expression, religious art. And uh, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people that were in that building with us. And everywhere you look, in front of sculptures and paintings and all the rest, there are people that are basically praying. They're bowing down in front of that whoever, picture of whoever. And uh, they're lighting candles. And they are very reverent. And they are, you know, praying. And, And to a certain extent, I think we have to have a respect for people's Um, you know, individual religious expression. However, the Bible is here for a reason to guide us. And we had on this tour, just as an example, we had on this tour, a woman who had grown up in, in, in an ancient church. in fact, in this ancient tradition, and she had, uh, and she was standing next to me and, and she was looking around. And I remember I looked at her and I realized what a moment this was for her to be standing in this place And I said to her, I said, you know, how does this make you feel? As she looked around at all of this. And with tears in her eyes, she said to me, these are all the things that got in the way. These are all the things that got in the way. Got in the way of what? Seeing Jesus as the only way to God. Okay? So is it wrong to have pictures of Jesus or the disciples in your house, or if we had, you know, framed pictures in our church, is it wrong for us to do that? Is it wrong for us to have children uh, flannel graph pictures of Jesus telling the stories from the gospel in our children's ministry? Is it wrong for films like The Passion of the Christ or Michelangelo's uh, Pieta? Is that just fundamentally wrong because they are making a representation of God. I would say to that, no, not technically. But however, we have to realize that this is a very slippery slope because we are fundamentally superstitious. And if your art can stay art to you, it's inspirational, it draws you in your heart to thinking about God or the cross or something like that, well then okay. If it is merely art, I think it can be appropriate. And even artistic expression like that can be, can be done. We see that God commanding artistic expression in the building of his own temple. And Gentiles building it and making the art, for goodness sakes. Which is a whole other argument about enjoying art. And even if non-Christians make it. And some of you now have a clear conscience for the radio station that you listen to on the way home from church. Uh, 
you didn't track with that or you would have thought that was funny. Um, The issue is not the art, the issue is the heart. The issue is not the art, the issue is the heart. And whether I am venerating that thing, picture, whatever it is, and somehow thinking that that draws me to God or is access to God. The truth is that Jesus is the only access to God. And when we look to anything else, even superstitiously, we are in a way minimizing the glory of Jesus and the glory of God. So have the art in your house if you want, but don't worship it. Don't pray to it. Don't talk to it. Don't bow down to it. Don't light candles to it. Don't worship it. It can draw your heart to God, but be careful that it does not become to you God or a means to God. Now, finally, there's a wonderful promise here. And some of you are like, why isn't he going to talk about the promise? I am. Here it is. Okay. Notice the promise that God makes, not for those that hate him, but for those that love him. See the promise here. What is God like but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments? Now, the ESV has an alternate, has a footnote there. If you have an ESV, you can see that it has the alternate that many of us are more familiar with, where he, is, he is, uh, shows his steadfast love to a thousand generations. Now, is it thousands of people or a thousand generations? I don't know. Smarter people than me couldn't figure it out either. But the point is the same. A life that is lived hating God and worshiping something less than God, there is a punishment and an influence that drags down his family to three generations. But for those who love God and for those that worship the one true God in the right way, there is a promise that God says, I will show my love to him, my steadfast love to him, and through him to influence thousands of others potentially and to draw them also to the one true God. And that's what God wants. He loves us enough to tell us, again, what is the purpose of the law? It is a map for us so that we can know how to live our life in a manner that is pleasing to God and to receive from him the blessings that come, trying to glorify him. And we don't perfectly, and that's why Jesus died for us, right? But now as Christians, to be guided in a path that helps us understand how to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And the second commandment is all about worshiping the right God and worshiping him in the right way. And he is God and he gets to decide what that right way is. And I hope this message has helped us as a church and you as individuals to know, and me as well, how do we do that? So let's go do that.